there's been a strategy from the very beginning for bringing meditation into medicine, what's now called participatory medicine. We're igniting passion in people for taking care of themselves from the inside. And if we take responsibility for our own little piece, well, because of interconnectedness, you take care of yourself, you're also taking care of the world. And it is a distributive function. We need all hands on deck. It's not like one great meditation teacher is going to come along and illuminate it for us for all time. Each one of us is the cells of the one body of the planet. And when it becomes we rather than me, I think that's a very healing direction to go in. Welcome to Mind and Life. I'm Wendy Hasenkamp. We are back with season three of the show, and we're kicking it off with a big one. Today, I'm speaking with John Kabat-Zinn. John likely needs no introduction. He's a renowned meditation teacher, author, and founder of the now widely applied program called Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction, or simply MBSR. This eight-week meditation training has been pivotal in introducing mindfulness to Western audiences, and it's now been adopted in a host of settings internationally, including healthcare, education, business, and mental health. As we hear, John began his journey as a scientist, and the spirit of inquiry that motivated that path continues to fuel his passion for investigating the mind through meditation. We cover a lot of ground in this conversation. It's a long one, but I didn't want to cut any of it out. John first shares how he got interested in meditation and his development of and vision for MBSR. And we get into his experience as a scientist in the mystery of the line or the boundary between the inside and outside of any system. We talk about adapting Buddhist practices for Western audiences and the ways that mindfulness has been taken up now in our society, largely driven by science. And we also get into the challenges of repeatability in scientific studies of meditation. John also reflects on weaving together art and science, moving from me to we, and how more than 50 years of meditation has changed him. One of the things I love about John is that his wisdom is timeless, and he also speaks directly to this moment we're in. He scales ideas seamlessly from intimate, individual experiences all the way up to global perspectives. John's work has been incredibly influential in my own life and my path into contemplative practice. So it was a great joy to speak with him for this episode, and I'm really happy to be able to share it with you. As always, more information and resources, including lectures, papers, and guided meditations, are available in the show notes if you'd like to dig deeper. So with that, it's my very great pleasure to share with you John Kabat-Zinn. Well, I am here with John Kabat-Zinn. John, it is such a pleasure and an honor to be with you. Thanks so much and welcome. Thank you, Wendy. It's wonderful to be here. So there's so many questions and directions that I would love to get into with you, but I think let's maybe just start with your personal story a little bit and how you got interested in meditation to begin with. Well, my personal story is my least favorite part of all of this. <laughs> and actually, you know, since so much of the import of my work is to get beyond your personal story. It's, it's not that easy for me to, to frame it in a way that really has some kind of import or validity. And of course, 
as everybody knows, you can tell your personal story in a thousand different ways, depending on the occasion, what kind of impression you want to make, who you're talking to, all of that kind of stuff. So there's a certain fundamental level of uh, contrivance where, of course, it's true, but it's only true to a degree. And that degreeness has everything to do with the subject matter of today, which is mindfulness and human awareness. So, of course, we need narratives and we need stories. And um, in some sense, that's how we understand each other. And that's how we connect and feel like we belong. But if the stories we tell are incomplete or not big enough, then in a sense, we diminish ourselves by even identifying with the story and then perpetrating it on other people to our own satisfaction or delight because we like the way we you know, present ourselves in everyday life unless we don't, unless we're depressed or anxious or whatever. And then we There's a part of us that knows that we're not that person, but it keeps, you know, leaking out. And then we feel embarrassed or, you know, reluctant to actually talk or even tell the story or be true to ourselves. And there's a big difference between telling the story and being true to yourself. So I guess that's a certain kind of preamble, because uh, since you asked, I mean, I'll tell a story that seems to be relevant in some way when I ask myself or other people, and I get asked it a lot, how did you come to do what it is that you have done? Right. And of course, that's a beautiful question for every single individual over the arc of their life is how how did you wind up here instead of there, some other Mm. kind of uh, fabrication of what might have been possible? And so I sometimes start with the fact that, you know, I happen to be born in a family where my father was a world-class scientist at Columbia University and, you know, endowed professorship and professor in four different departments and, you know, really uh, what what would now be called a molecular immunologist. Mm. And I lived one apartment house away from his laboratory, his building with his lab. So he could walk to work in like five minutes and be in his lab at six in the morning. And that's the way I grew up with a, mm. with a father like that. And we had all sorts of scientists over for dinner all the time with his lab. And so I grew up in uh, that kind of world. And then my mother was a very enthusiastic uh, and... I would say, intrinsically talented and fairly well-trained painter who painted only for herself and Mm. regretted the one painting she ever sold to somebody, (laughs) uh, even though she was incredibly prolific. So she did a lot of stuff in a lot of different forms and media and everything. And she also played the flute. Um, but she was completely unknown. She had no interest in becoming known as a painter. So I grew up in what, in the 50s, I grew up in the 50s in New York, in Washington Heights, uh, right next to the Columbia Medical School, uh, in what C.P. Snow called the two cultures, famously, you know, the, the humanities and the sciences. And, and that was like my mother and father. So there was a certain way in which I felt their passion, both on the science side and on the on the artistic and musical side. And I could also see that they didn't really, they loved each other, but they didn't actually really 
have the equipment to understand each other's, the depth of each other's uh, insight into mm. the realities that they were investigating. Mm. And I picked that up probably when I was four years old. And so I grew up in this household where this was like uh, the coin of the realm, but I was always in some sense aware that those two epistemologies, if you will, didn't intersect that much at the level of their understanding of each other's passions in depth. Mm. And so that had an effect on me in a certain way. And I didn't realize that, of course, until I was in college and in my, uh, or maybe even later, but it was in college when I first got exposed to the history of science and of uh, and history more broadly, and whole question of like different ways in which people investigate reality, and and I remember very vividly taking a history course in which you know the the Christian fathers on Mount Athos were you know meditating and inquiring uh, you know as to the nature of reality, and it just it just twin there was a twinge there i mean nothing more than a twinge but like oh actually you could meditate as a form of investigation i had mm. no idea what meditation was but then when i went to mit as a graduate student in 1964 in molecular biology and i wound up in the laboratory of uh, salvador luria who won the nobel prize in 1969 while i was in the lab and you know wow. it's like and, and mit was just like that i mean there were lots of nobel laureates all over the place and we were all on a first name basis and it was like the the renaissance of molecular biology at the time it was phenomenal where they were like you know working out the genetic code right um and i went to a talk in 1965 by Philip Kaplow, this uh, American Zen master who had written a book called The Three Pillars of Zen. And I went to that talk. I, I saw the thing and I was, I mean, it was the Vietnam War was just starting up, the Gulf mm. of Tonkin. I was very, very aware of the misuses of science for, you know, human destruction. MIT was very involved in developing guidance systems, all the guidance mm. systems and smart weapons all came out of the instrumentation lab and, right. and uh, Doc Draper, uh, who I met and, uh, you know, had a number of kind of, not altercations, but interactions with uh, during the, you know, political turmoil of the 60s. And um, so I went to this talk called The Three Pillars of Zen, not knowing what Zen was, not, but just depressed out of my mind and not happy mm. at all. And well, a seminar hour at MIT, usually a seminar room will be full with like 100 people. There were like four people aside from the speaker and Houston oh Smith gosh. who invited four <laughs> people. And I happened to be one of them. And Kaplow's talk just took the absolute top off my head. I was 21 years old and, and I just... I just said, this is what I've been looking for my entire life. That way of holding, because it was like clear right from the moment he started talking, it's awareness that will hold different epistemologies, different ways of knowing, different narratives and so on. The awareness that can hold it all can actually both discern and differentiate in ways that are illuminating and perhaps liberating. Mm. So... That's I started meditating that night, and uh, and then he came back and led a what 
he called the session, you know, sort of for several days. And But I just started meditating there. And of course, you know, people start an awful lot of things in their 20s that never make it to their 30s. Right. But I'm still going like 55 years later and counting, you know. Uh, so it, it touched something in me that is hard to explain, but that really goes back to my childhood. Mm. And that, that sort of just a sense that there has to be some kind of unifying way of uh, holding all of the diversity of ways of knowing and being that has integrity and that's not imperialistic, that it's not like my way is the way, mm -hmm. but just a way with a capital W, so to speak. And that in some sense, I always felt that that's what our karmic assignment is on this planet, is to find the way that's yours, you know, which is what the Tao is all, really all about, or Dharma, is not to adopt some kind of belief system or catechism or formulaic kind of structure that helps you get through the day, but to investigate for yourself in a very deep way using the apparatus of all of our multiple intelligences and capacity for both stillness and action and wakefulness intrinsically to do that work. And so I consider that to be lab work. And since I grew up as a laboratory scientist, this is like the ultimate laboratory. And, you know, so you take your seat metaphorically and literally, right. and you investigate what the hell is going on. Uh, when you create certain ground rules, like don't move no matter what. You don't have to establish that ground rule, but I was like, you know, a green beret of this kind of thing. I was really <laughs> into it because Kaplow was really into it. And the whole Zen tradition was really mm. into like, you know, you, this is not kidding around. So you, you got a certain kind of tough, you know, sort of um, high energy approach. Right. So that, that's how I came to meditation. And then it's, of course, a, an ongoing flowering. I mean, so it's not like you're just doing one thing for 55 years because it's not a doing in the first place. It's a dropping into being and then learning, so to speak, how to take up residency in the, the vocabulary that I've sort of fallen on over the years is the boundless spaciousness of your own heart or your own awareness. Mm. And then, of course, the curriculum is whatever arises, inwardly or outwardly, and the challenge, how am I going to be in wise relationship to it? Mm. And then, of course, since I framed it that way, who is that anyway? Who, who, right. who am I? What am I? And this seems to me to be at the absolute kind of uh, rock foundation of what it means to be human. And it really is, it really begs investigation, not by a few people in ivory towers or in labs, but by all of us. And since all of us are endowed with a, a lab, so to speak, and we don't want the lab to deteriorate over time through lack of use, and the body's a very big part of it, that so we really need to learn how to inhabit our own laboratory and let it uh, be the catalyst for what we might uh, how we might develop over the course of a lifetime, which, of course, the word development, you know, 
in the meditative world is like bhavana in Sanskrit, which actually is a term of cultivation and development that we're planting certain kinds of seeds and then we water them in a very disciplined way, but also totally open and beyond name and form and forcing anything and then see what unfolds. Mm. But that's the sort of personal thing about it. You know, I mean, I was a street kid. I mean, my, my parents were, as I described them, so I had this academic anchor, but I was out there playing in the streets on 170th Street in Washington Heights with kids that did not go to my public school. They were all going to, you know, the Incarnation or St. Rose of Lima, you know. And they came from very, very different kind of working class Irish and, and Italian families. And, you know, it was not easy to belong in that kind of uh, environment without a certain kind of toughness that wasn't mere affectation because it was like, you know, I had to fight a lot. Mm. And I learned a huge amount from that. I mean, I couldn't have asked for a better environment in which to grow up. Somehow my parents just let me out on the streets forever and never monitored or followed up. I, you know, <laughs> as a parent myself, like I would never, ever allow that to happen in the 50s in New York City with that thing that was going on, <laughs> gangs and everything else. Right. But somehow, for me, it was the perfect karmic assignment because I found out how people not like myself just live and uh, what their issues were. And I found a way to actually befriend and, you know, and even in some fundamental way belong, even though there came a time when it became obvious that I didn't belong, that there were prejudices that were, you know, sort of part of their own family, you know, arcs and uh, they started to come out after years but for you know between the ages of like seven and 15 or something like that I was like a total street urchin and then going home to conversations about art and science right do you feel like that toughness that you developed on the streets informed the way that you approached practice or like the development of MBSR or any of your later work? Yeah, it, it did. I mean, because it's like, it's like not kidding around. There's certain attitudes that develop from that. Some of the toughness, of course, I had to work really hard to get rid of. I mm. mean, just editing my language, my street language <laughs> when I went to college. I mean, it took a very long time to not intersperse every other word with, you know, sort of the street language of the New York at that time. Um, and it was just totally natural to me. I feel like, as I was suggesting, it, it taught me in a certain way that it was possible to be with virtually anybody if you saw who they were and you could relate to that part of them that was friendly. Mm. And there's a part of everybody that's like friendly and wants to be seen and met. I mean, His Holiness, the Dalai Lama is saying that all the time, and he's serious about it, you know. But when you get, you know, sort of um, predisposed to seeing somebody through a particular kind of lens, you might disregard or be completely out of touch with that vulnerability in them or that open, you know, heartfulness in them. Uh, and because I grew up in that kind of environment, I think it gave me a real sense that I could handle anything. 
And again, in terms of the toughness, uh, well, my first exposure to rigorous meditation practice was Philip Kaplow in the Zen tradition. And Philip Kaplow was like a, you know, a drill sergeant mm. of Rinzai Zen, so to speak. <laughs> you know, that's a whole other story because I had certain kind of encounters with him around that, mm. about how his toughness, I wound up rejecting it at a certain point. Uh, but there's a certain element of the discipline that always shaped me that is like, hey, we're not kidding around. This life is short. And the discipline has certain elements of payoff. So your motivation has to be profound to be able to deal with that kind of disciplined uh, orientation. And then within the discipline, which is tough, huge gentleness, open-heartedness, mm -hmm. and uh, non-judging spaciousness. So those are muscles that you can actually exercise, just the way Richie is always talking about, like, you know, sort of skill training and, and actually developing certain kind of skills to face the vagaries of the mind and body and out, outer world. So to see the discipline itself as a love affair is really profound. And I think it's a gift because a lot of people often don't have enough confidence in themselves to opt for a certain kind of open-hearted, spacious, loving, but rigorous discipline. Like, mm -hmm. I will get my ass on the cushion no matter what. No matter what. And at four o'clock in the morning, if <laughs> I can't do it at five, you know, I'll push my meditation practice back as far as I can so it doesn't interfere with family and kids and everything else, but it's, there's no way I'm giving up on it. There's a certain way in which at first, that's kind of like just immature. But after 10 or 20 years, that softens, at least in my experience. But the rigor of like not kidding around about it, that stays. And I hope that in MBSR, that there's been that kind of transmission that uh, this is a love affair. But it's also one that where the stakes could not be higher because it's nothing but your life, your heart, your mind, and how you are in the world and how, not just how the world is treating you, but how you're treating the world. As one of my teachers early on, on a Vipassana retreat, asked me that. You know, I walked in for an interview and he said, how's the world treating you? Meaning, you know, I thought he thought, well, how's the retreat going? You know, how's the world treating you? <laughs> the world isn't treating me well unless like intensive retreat and we're not talking. But then I said something or other. And then he said, and how are you treating the world? And I was just completely undone. Mm. Because I didn't think that sitting on my cushion 12 hours a day was calling me to interface with the world. But what he was pointing to was, you don't you don't leave the world when you go on an intensive retreat. Right. So there are all sorts of elements of I think um, I'm sure this is true for every single meditator. I'll bet it's true for you that you remember when meditation first landed in your life in a way that uh, you experienced. I'll bet you've never forgotten it, and I think that's true for virtually all of us because something shifts, some kind of glimmer or opening about how am I unknown what the my refers to in relationship to myself, also unknown what that's about, but certainly a field of infinite possibility, especially when you're young. And that's a really important question to be asking yourself. And you could go through 
all your entire education system and never run into that. Right. And then now we know through your work and the work of thousands of people who have made this their career that it's worthy of investigation through a lot of different scientific lenses because this practice, which from the outside looks a lot like absolutely nothing, <laughs> you're just sitting there. And of course, that's not the real meditation practice. We can get into that. But let's say the sitting is still extremely important, yeah. whether you do it lying down or standing on your head or whatever. But, you know, that's, that's absolutely critical. But it can't be done with any kind of forcing or a gaining idea or attachment mm. to the gaining idea, because of course you'll have a gaining idea about it. Mm. Is you're, we're doing this for no reason, or we're doing this to get somewhere. And as yeah. soon as you, you know, really are mm, caught in the virus of getting somewhere, uh, you've shot yourself in the heart, not in the foot. And so this non-dual orientation to, yeah, this is like, incredible discipline is required, but not for any kind of end result. That, um, in some sense, is totally disarming and um, invitational to inquire about what's not being recognized. Mm -hmm. And that's, uh, I mean, if I'd found anything more powerful than this in my life, I certainly wouldn't be doing this. I mean, mm -hmm. and the other point I want to make is I'm using the verb doing, but it's not a doing, it's, it's a being. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's in some sense, so that, that you don't need a result because you already are the result. And it's just as you are, as opposed to as you think you would be, you should be if you just trimmed off all the rough edges and sanded things down and, you know, put a certain kind of face forward and pretended that you were uh, your ideal self <laughs> when you don't even know who needs to pretend anything. I'd love to unpack a little bit. So you mentioned MBSR, uh, which is, of course, mindfulness-based stress reduction, which is one of the things I think you're maybe best known for is starting that program. Um, can you talk a little bit about how you began to develop that and what your approach was and what you were hoping it would achieve? Yeah, it... it it's not so much that I developed it. It just like, uh, it came out of my, the koan of my life, you know, mm. in a certain point. It was like when I, okay, I was like at MIT getting a PhD in molecular biology with a Nobel laureate. So on a certain kind of trajectory. And I was also meditating my butt off and asking what is uh, my true way with a capital W and I realized that like all the graduate students that I were with they were like you know like all on the Nobel Prize trajectory mm. 
But there was this other thing going on with me the whole time, which is like, we really need to bring science to this whole other dimension that nobody's like even talking about. Mm -hmm. And when I would talk about yoga and meditation, I mean, you can imagine how the faculty at MIT was taking that. And there was a whole conversation about it in my PhD thesis defense, because I put in the front of my thesis a line that went just on a page by itself right after the title page. Yeah. He who dies before he dies does not die when he dies. And my thesis defense, they said, what's this he who dies before he dies does not die when he dies? That was their first question about my thesis. And <laughs> I said, defense. wait a minute, wait a minute. Do you really want to know? Because I'm supposed to be here defending my research, you know. So that took up more than half of my thesis. <laughs> and I won't go into the details here, but I, I basically was, you know, suggesting that there was a different way of investigating the nature of life and the nature of mind. Ironic that we should be having this conversation around mind and life, because that's <laughs> right. what biology is all about. And that was why I went into biology, was not to become a biologist. I went into biology because I want to understand the nature of uh, consciousness, was mm. the way I put it in those days. Mm. What was your research about that you were defending, or was it totally unrelated? No, well, you know, mo uh, most of it was about bacteriophage, bacterial uh -huh. viruses, but then I actually wrote my thesis on proteins called colicins that are genetically kind of produced by plasmids, these fragments of DNA that move in and out of the chromosome of uh, prokaryotic bacteria, and that produce these proteins that when they bind to another bacterium, uh, they actually somehow uh, kill it. And I was studying the mechanism of that killing it and oh, how, how it affected okay. the, the cell uh, membranes of, uh, of the bacteria that were sensitive to these colicins. Oh, great. So is that the link then to dying before you die? But, but you know, th that was all about like, well, bacteria, okay? Yeah, yeah. Why are they even alive? Viruses, of course, we've just been through the pandemic. And these viruses, they're not actually living. Right. And bacteriophage, I read recently... By weight, there are more bacteriophage on the planet than any other, you know, thing. Wow. Basically, living thing. But they're not yeah. alive. Right. So this whole question of, you know, that Francisco Varela was deeply interested in that had to do with um, inside and outside. What makes something living? What is the nature of a, a cell? Mm -hmm. um, and uh, autopoiesis, he called it. What, what is that characteristic? I was obsessed with inside and outside the cell membrane. What, why was inside alive in the cell, but outside not alive? And a bacteriophage would land on the receptors on the cell surface and then inject its DNA inside. And then the DNA takes over the entire machinery, as we used to say, of the cell and div diverts it for its own purposes. That's what's still going on, you know, with RNA viruses and COVID and everything else. And it's like, holy moly, this is phenomenal stuff. But from an evolutionary point of view, how do you get the first cell? How do you get uh, inside and outside? Mm. And we're thinking about clathrates and all sorts of stuff. I mean, it's like I absolutely loved science. I loved uh, 
the chemistry underneath uh, the biological structures. And I just like, like a pig in a poke doing this kind of stuff. But at the same time, this, this kind of deep sort of uncertainty about how this relates to the inner and outer of being human. Mm. And where the boundary of my heart is, for instance, or the boundary of our love, or the boundary of our uh, caring for the planet. And, and molecular biology was not going to take me there. And there was no neuroscience at that time. It was mm. called neurophysiology. So I decided to switch over to the other lab, you know, the lab of, you know, meditation practice. The inner lab. Yeah. Yeah. And then with the intention this this would all come together. And so when I started MBSR, I knew right from the start, even though I'm not trained to do any kind of research with people, I mean, I was doing research on bacteriophage and E. coli, that I had to learn enough about how to do outcome studies with human beings that I could at least establish some kind of a priori validity for uh, a, a training program for medical patients with chronic medical conditions in mindfulness to see what, what the various outcomes would be. Um, and so that's what I did. Mm. So when you started that program, was it kind of equally the hope of helping relieve suffering for the people who were going through the program, as well as beginning the scientific inquiry? Totally. There was like a, it's like the double-stranded DNA. You couldn't have one without the other. Because otherwise, like, let's say, you know, we had really impressive results clinically happening with all these people that are falling through the cracks of the healthcare system. That's the way I saw it. And this mm. is in 1979. Now, there aren't cracks in the healthcare system. There are grand canyons, chasms mm. in the healthcare system. And the idea was, and I, I basically convinced the Department of Medicine that this would be a good idea. What do you do with all the people you don't know what to do with? who are falling through the cracks of your own system that you don't even want to see anymore because Mrs. So-and-so is not responding to your medication. You suspect she's not even taking her medication or you don't know what to do because she's got 20 different chief complaints. Mm. I said, wouldn't it be helpful to have a clinic in the hospital where you send everybody you don't know what to do with, no matter what your medical specialty is, not just medicine, orthopedics, anesthesiology, chronic pain, um, neurology, headaches, um, GI for all sorts, irritable bowel and everything else. Mm. I mean, I just intuited that a lot of people were falling through the cracks of the healthcare system. And so I talked to a bunch of docs and said, like, would it be helpful if you had a clinic where you just sent all the people you don't know what to do with anymore? And then we would challenge them to do something for themselves that nobody else on the planet could do for them. I didn't bother saying, but it's not really a doing. <laughs> but we will use meditated, these ancient, I would say, ancient, very venerable <laughs> meditation practices and hatha yoga to see if we couldn't ignite a certain kind of passion in them for taking care of themselves from the inside in ways that we can't do just by administering medicine and surgery from the outside. 
And these, and and I tell you, the response when I started talking to people, like the head of the primary care clinic and so forth, they say, I can think of 60 people off the top of my head that I would send you tomorrow. That was in 1979. Yeah. Wow. So I just like said, okay. And I opened, I was the secretary. I was, I mean, I did everything. <laughs> I mean, there was nobody there except me. And, you know, I put people into classes and then I taught them. Yeah. And I could tell within the first cycle that, and people were saying things like, this has saved my life. Mm -hmm. But a large enough fraction of those people were saying, this is like fantastic. Well, it's like what's now called participatory medicine. We're, we're igniting passion in people for taking care of themselves from the inside, so to speak, as a complement to whatever medicine can do for them from the outside. So there's that inside-outside thing again on a whole other level from bacteria and bacterial mm. viruses. Yeah. Uh, how did you go about, you know, from what you had learned through the Zen tradition, and did you practice in other traditions before that time? Or, uh, Well, I got into Hatha Yoga in 1966 uh, when I went to the Matson Karate Studio in uh, Boston to train mm -hmm. in Okinawan karate, which I did. Um, I was very into martial arts, but they were doing something as warm-ups that I had never seen before. These were all like Marines that were just back from tours of duty in Vietnam. They were very tough guys, and they were into this like Okinawan karate, which is all like very hard martial art. Like you just bash everything yeah. and block with tremendous ferocity. But they were actually doing warm-ups, which turned out to be shoulder stand, the fish, the plow, uh -huh. headstands. And I go, holy cow, this is fantastic. Uh -huh. So I got more into the yoga than I did the martial <laughs> cool. arts, although I did continue with the martial arts. And, and so I started practicing yoga right then and there. And I discovered this genius of a yoga teacher offering classes, free classes in Harvard Square in the basement of a church. John Lauder was his name. He was an architect by day and a yogi by night. <laughs> this is like, in you got to imagine this in the mid-60s in Harvard right. Square. And there were like hundreds of people in this class, almost all of them women, almost no men. And he was like a genius. And, and so, you know, and he was teaching it. He wouldn't use that vocabulary, but he was teaching it in a very, very investigative, micro mm. uh a way that was really about mindfulness, not about mm. striving or forcing mm -hmm. yourself into particular postures so you could look good in your leotard come summer. But a lot of people were there for that purpose. Right. So, yeah, so all these threads seemed to come together so that it seemed like, well, of course we should have Hatha Yoga as part of it right. because that's a one-body door. And, of course, we should have sitting meditation. But, of course... We have a huge number of people being referred from the pain clinic. They can't even sit mm -hmm. for five minutes, never mind for 45 minutes. So let's start everybody out lying down. Let's mm -hmm. teach lying down meditation. Well, that's a real high-risk endeavor because, you know, the first occupational hazard of <laughs> any form of meditation is that instead of falling awake, which is the whole point, <laughs> you'll fall asleep. Yes, But, you know, it turned out to be a very good choice. And the body scan, which in part I adapted from what John Lauder was doing at the end of his yoga class, mm -hmm. 
and and of course from uh, Goenka's sweeping meditation, Ubakin's whole tradition of, you know, very micro level scanning through the body. Um, after doing three days of anapana, just breath awareness. So there were all these different doors, so to speak, that MBSR developed into the same room. So body scan, sitting meditation, mindful hatha yoga, and walking, mindful walking meditation. And to go back to your question, I trained with a number of different Zen masters, but I also trained uh, once uh, you know, Jack and Joseph and and Sharon came back from Asia and started teaching uh, what we called Vipassana in those days or insight meditation. I started going on those retreats as well and um, really uh, exploring how the different traditions all within the Buddhist Dharma umbrella uh, actually are mm, very skillful at teaching in very, very different ways. Mm. And so MBSR is in some sense a synthesis of, uh, a lot of people say, well, it's most like Vipassana, but mm. if people want to do that, then my corrective would be it's Vipassana with a Zen attitude. Mm -hmm. But of course, people don't understand what that means <laughs> when I say it. But, uh, but what it's really pointing to is a kind of non-dual orientation that is really grounded in my own experience in the Heart Sutra and the, the sort of core teachings, the uh, form is emptiness and emptiness is form. And then everything else that involves in that so that finally you go around what Sung San, my Korean Zen teacher, called the Zen circle where form is emptiness and emptiness is form. And then there's no form and then there's no emptiness. <laughs> and when you keep on practicing, ultimately form is form and emptiness is emptiness. And you just <laughs> missed it the first time around, but with no attachment. So easy to say, not so easy to actually uh, live. Right. But I felt like if MBSR doesn't have that non-dual Chan direct wisdom orientation, then it would be like a therapy. And the last thing I wanted to do was to create a therapy. MBSR is not meant to be a therapy. Hmm. It's meant to be a liberative practice. It's a Dharma vehicle. It's, you know, I say that you know, with some degree of trepidation, because who am I to say that it's a Dharma vehicle? But that was my intention, that mm -hmm. it was coming from that kind of a place and not from a place of let's give people techniques that will help them modulate their stress levels or their pain levels just to get through the day. This was about mm. deep insight into the nature of self and the nature of reality. And then uh, trusting that each person would take that curriculum and be undone and redone by it, by that engagement in a way that would generate, uh, my shorthand for this is some degree of learning. Mm -hmm. Who am I? You know, this person that has high blood pressure or chronic back pain and got referred to this crazy clinic with 30 other people sitting in a circle, all with unimaginably mm -hmm. chronic, horrible conditions that nobody wants. And who, who am I underneath my diagnosis and my stories and everything else? And then what you see is that people were taking to this like ducks to water, mm. ducks to water. And it was like <laughs> awe-inspiring to see. I mean, 
I learned far more, and I think this is true for all MBSR teachers and probably for all meditation teachers, we learn far more from our students than they learn from <laughs> us. So that's kind of, you know, a little bit of how it evolved. And it was obvious that we need to study it in not just descriptive ways with self-report and so forth, but that became a whole other challenge is mm. how do you actually do, you know, sort of more clinical trials within uh, an ongoing what became a major clinic in the hospital where we were getting referrals from all over the hospital from all sorts of different disciplines and subspecialties and also from at least 50% after a while from uh, physicians in the larger central mass community. And it's been going now for 42 years, so uninterrupted yeah. Uh, yeah. in spite of various ups and downs, but uninterrupted. So it's it's an object lesson, I think, in a certain way in how um, if the Dharma is kind of languaged and held in a certain way, it can uh, feel like giving food to starving people and exactly what people are starving for. In other words, food, nurturance of mm -hmm. a certain kind on a very deep level, without a catechism, without a philosophy, without, you know, some kind of dominant ideology that, has to, that you have to buy along with it or a religious perspective. But uh, in the deepest of ways, really uh, kind of an arc of people come, as I was saying, and they learn something, whatever it is about themselves, about their body, about their breath, about their mind, about each other, because you hear what other people are carrying. Mm -hmm. Of course, the word carrying, you know, is the root meaning in, uh, of the word to suffer. Oh, I didn't know that. In Latin, it's to carry. So if you have 30 people in a room with chronic medical problems and you look around the room and you're you've got what you've got and you hear what they've got all of a sudden you realize holy moly this is the human condition mm. writ large but intimate because these are real human beings with names sitting right across from you and they're going to for the next eight weeks and what you have in common is we've noticed this from the very beginning and we've never found any exception whether people are brought in on stretchers or wheelchairs or crutches or on their own, that there's not a single case in which somebody came to the stress reduction clinic and was not breathing. Mm -hmm. There was not a single case that somebody came to the stress reduction clinic and there was not a body. Right. <laughs> so we start there. Yeah. It's the first foundation of mindfulness, the body. Yeah. And so there's a certain kind of intrinsic logic to the unfolding of mindfulness that's kind of no separation from, you know, the four foundations of mindfulness. And then when that's done in a way that is non-dual and where you have that Zen orientation of non-attachment to name and form and noticing how, as a teacher, you yourself are getting attached over and over, mm. about, wanting people to like you or wanting people to feel better after a week or two of meditating. Don't you love meditating now? No, I hate <laughs> meditating. And well, hating meditation is as powerful as loving meditation. <laughs> Both of them are seriously suspect. Come back in 10 years and tell me how you feel <laughs> about it. That When you take that kind of, and that's a certain kind of tough angle to the whole mm. thing, to go back to what we were talking mm. about earlier. But when you take that kind of orientation, people feel seen, met, and respected in a way because you're not forcing them to be other than they are or putting some kind of dangling, some kind of ideal out in front of them that they're never, ever going to actually attain. Mm. 
But on the other hand, to actually point out, there's nothing to attain because you're already whole, W-H-O-L-E, which is the root meaning of the word health, healing, and even holy, H-O-L-Y. Mm. So from learning, whatever it is that people learn, what does learning do? It catalyzes growth. We, we don't understand this even, you know, there's even yeah. pedagogy. Why, why, why do we bother learning anything? Why do we teach anybody? Because there's, it's not just facts. This is like a computer can have all, you know, all facts. But out of the facts, there's some kind of synthesis, some kind of growing. And out of that growing, especially when it has to do with life and death, uh, and the breath and the body and the mind and how the mind can be your worst enemy or your best friend... Out of that comes healing, which in my working definition is coming to terms with things as they are. Mm. Okay? So that's a kind of koan. What does that mean, coming to terms with things as they are? So it's not like getting rid of your pain, getting rid of your stress, living forever because you found the secret to longevity. And you start to talk about like telomeres and how like I'm going to just like, you know, keep my telomeres long forever. All of those are like important elements of this whole thing. But healing is like right in this moment. How are you in relationship to the actuality of what you're carrying? The good, the bad, and the ugly. Not just your diagnosis, medical diagnosis or psychiatric diagnosis, but the totality of it. And then the koan, who's, who's carrying it anyway? And is that you? So that is actually liberative, that kind of healing. And it results in transformation. You are the same person you always were, and you're not. And I don't have to say that to anybody. I never say that to anybody. They say it to me. They say, I don't know what's happened, but I just am more comfortable in my own skin in my own life. And I know something about my direction going forward mm-hmm. while I have some years left or whatever it is. So that arc of learning, growing, healing, and transformation or transcendence or liberation. I mean, it's all like, you know, lives right inside the heart of Dharma. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's really what it's about. One of the most um, incredible insights that I imagine you had early on, I'm curious when this came to you, but was to secularize these practices, right? And so you went through the process, I assume, of kind of extracting these insights. No, I I didn't. Yeah. How did that go? And in fact, I've come, although I've used the word, uh, and so don't take this as a criticism. (laughs) Yeah, no, no. I've come to abhor the word secularizing. Well, please, yeah, nuance that. The word I've landed on, it's not so great, uh, is mainstreaming. Mm. Okay? Yeah, that's a good word. Secular implies that I'm taking something sacred and denaturing it Mm -hmm. to make it available more broadly. But I really do see the Dharma as sacred. Right, that's what I was going to ask about. Yeah. 
and I see the Dharma as sacred in the same way that I see life as sacred. It's no separation. So then the question is, what is the meaning of sacred even? So I'm not willing to fall into the dualism of, yeah, John took the Dharma, which is this sacred Buddhist, you know, incredibly beautiful universe, and denatured it, secularized it, and then is making it available for the low life of uh, people who, you know, haven't really um, moved into the orbit of uh, Buddhist illumination. Uh, you know, as His Holiness is always saying, you know, there's seven billion people on the planet. There are seven billion people who are suffering. Not, not you know, there there are one billion Buddhists, but there's seven billion who are suffering. Okay, so if the Dharma is only for Buddhists, I mean, that's it's absurd. It's on its face absurd, and I don't, you know, people don't always love me for saying it, but I say it for a range of different reasons, and in some sense feel like it's true enough to say that the Buddha wasn't the Buddhist, you know. Right. The Buddha was a Buddha. And the point of meditation practice is not to become a Buddhist, or nor do you have to go through that gate in order to become a, 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 an authentic meditator, but to become a, um, a Buddha. And that simply means you know, not not emulating a statue in some temple or in the British Museum, but uh, awake, which is what the word means. So if the Buddha was talking, pointing to uh, an intrinsic quality of humanity that is liberative and a possibility for uh, embodied wakefulness, mindfulness being long ago decided, I'll use mindfulness as a kind of umbrella term for mm -hmm. inclusivity. Because if I was teaching a more Buddhist-oriented framework around either the Theravadan orientation or even early Buddhism, or for that matter, Zen, and people would be running screaming from the room in class one and they would never come back. Exactly, yeah. So it's not skillful. But that doesn't mean that I'm secularizing something and, mm. and in some sense denaturing it. What I'm trying to do, which I believe has been the course of the entire arc of Dharma since way before the Buddha, is to find skillful ways for this essential, liberative, embodied wisdom to flow into the world, just as, say, water from the high Himalayas or the glaciers that are rapidly disappearing actually flow down mountains. And if they run into obstacles, what does the water do? It just goes around the obstacle. It finds its way down. And I have a deep kind of conviction in a certain way that the Dharma has that same kind of liquid power, that it has mm -hmm. the way of flowing into interstitches and interfaces that seem like impossible that it could get in there, and it does, and then it moves stuff. And I think that part of what we're seeing with you might say the explosion of interest in mindfulness, even if a lot of it is hype and, and bullshit, frankly. Uh, there's a huge amount of it that is not hype or bullshit. And that that's going to stand the test of time. Why? Because it's Dharma. 
and the other stuff because it's just hype. Sooner or later, they'll be on to the next hype, you know, mm. sort of uh, inducing thing. And everybody will forget about mindfulness and it'll be so yesterday. And I can't wait for that day because <laughs> those of us who, who like care, who love in this way, we're not, we're not going with the next fad. Right. So, so in a sense, there's been a strategy from the very beginning for bringing meditation into medicine since the two words sound exactly alike because they are from the same deep Indo-European root. And in that way, you know, in 1979, the idea of bringing meditation into mainstream medicine, academic medicine, was tantamount to, as I like to say, the Visigoths are at the gates of the citadel about to tear down Western civilization. Yeah. Bringing yoga and meditation into medicine. Yeah. Harvard Medical School. UMass Medical School, Stanford Medical School, any medical school. Now, yoga and meditations in all of those medical schools and hundreds more, and nobody bats an eye. That's a huge cultural shift yeah. or what I sometimes call an orthogonal rotation in consciousness. Mm. It's like nothing's happened, everything's happened. Mm. And the science has been an incredible driver of all of this or catalyst of this because for some reason, I mean, science is the religion of the day. Right. And so even if the science itself could be questionable, as many of uh, our colleagues, you know, point out that there are various kinds of interpretations of the validity of, you know, sort of even fMRI sure. studies and stuff like that. But the overall preponderance of the evidence, whether you're talking about neuroplasticity or you're talking about epigenetics or you're talking about telomeres and telomerase or all the other kinds of lines of evidence across all sorts of different ages and genders and, and diagnoses, the dominant kind of vector of evidence is that there's something here that's really powerful. And it needs whole other levels of scientific investigation and maybe mm. even technologies that we haven't yet arrived at, but that there is something here that's worthy of study. And, and if that's happened in a relatively short period of time, 40 years, that's yeah. like nothing. Yeah. So uh, I sort of keep reminding myself, as I was once reminded by Harada Roshi, a Japanese Zen master who gave me a poster on September 11th, 2001, when I was at his monastery on Whidbey Island. I was visiting with a bunch of people, and he gave us all uh, a, a poster, Enzo. Mm, the circle. Yeah, Zen circle calligraphy. Uh, and underneath it says, never forget the 1,000-year view. So mm. I went into teaching MBSR with the 1,000-year view, not having the poster or have, a, have <laughs> met him, or but just it was like, yeah, just out of my childhood that this is, and I don't have to be attached to anything happening, any outcome, just be true to my own understanding. And then let's see if it becomes infectious in a positive way. So just like we've been through COVID, I mean, I think mindfulness is a kind of meme or viral element that, that of positivity, of transformation, of love, mm. of illumination, of liberation, that it has its own kind of dynamic. So rather than us doing it, it, you could argue, and I do sometimes, that it's much more 
that the meditation practice is doing us mm. more than we're doing the meditation mm. practice at a certain point. And that it's gone through all sorts of, you know, if you go back to the time of the Buddha and then through China and so forth, 500 year cycles of, you know, sort of a renaissance and then decay and then renaissance and then decay. But those cycles are collapsing. So in mm. 40 years, the Dharma has actually moved into the mainstream in ways that were literally unimaginable yeah. in the 1970s. And what comes of it is not any one of us's responsibility. It's all of our responsibility. And there's no one way or one catechism or one voice or one hero exactly the opposite deep deep listening to what the world is calling for what where the suffering is coming from where the beauty lies even underneath and inside the suffering that's the practice and then whether it's mbsr or mbct or mb je ne sais quoi it in some sense doesn't matter and all of those to really be effective clinically uh, the teachers have to go reach a point where they're no longer following a curriculum. They're no longer right. following a catechism that is limiting. It doesn't mean that there isn't a curriculum, but what is the curriculum becomes a Zen koan. Right. What is the true curriculum? And if you walk into class one or two or three or four or five or six or seven, eight, and you impose what you planned for that day, you've just missed the boat. You have to hold in mind what might happen during that day, but then within the context of whatever is emergent. And then your wisdom is what does all the work. Your compassion, your sensitivity, your kindness, your deep listening, and your practice, ultimately. Yeah. That's what winds up doing all the work. And then you get a class out of an infant. When you walk in, any teacher knows this, you walk into a classroom, but let's say an MBSR, a mindfulness-based classroom, and, of course, you have some idea of which class it is and what the arc of the curriculum, the explicit curriculum is, but then there's the implicit curriculum. But you walk into the classroom, there are an infinite number. It's just like the collapse of the wave function in quantum mechanics. Mm -hmm. Before you walk into the classroom or as you're walking in, there are an infinite number of classes that might unfold. But when you walk out of the classroom two and a half hours later, the, that infinitude of possibilities has collapsed into the class that you got. Yeah. And there's an art to that. There's a beauty to that, that when the teacher is sensitive to it, then the teaching's not coming out of a book, out of a, what they you know so facilely at the NIH call a treatment manual, where you're just like from the book to the... Right. Um, teaching out of the treatment manual. Yeah, but uh, that's not mindfulness. You can't teach out of a manual. This is the manual. Mm. The human heart is the manual. And all your, your life up to that moment informs the curriculum. That's so interesting. And I'm thinking about what you said about science and, of course, being one of the major drivers of how this has been taken up in the mainstream. And then what you were just describing how that almost goes against, you know, the approach of science that it should be repeatable, right? It should be something that you can, like a ma the manualized version, right? What I'm talking about is infinitely repeatable. Yeah. It's just never the same. They're not the same, right? Yeah. And so that's where science, I love that you brought that up, because I think this is where science actually needs to stretch its own envelope. 
That's why I'm not a big fan of treatment manuals right. because there's the pretense that it's always the same, but everybody's going to even dump the treatment manual onto their class right. in a way that even if it's effective, it's going to be different every single time sure. you do it, every time somebody else does it. So there's this uncertainty principle, so to speak, that's very much like, you know, this sort of complementarity between an elementary particle, you know, a wave and form, that it's like, you know, form and emptiness, uh, inner and outer, inside, outside, and then explicit curriculum, implicit curriculum. Right. And, and that the teacher has to hold all that, not in their mind, but in their being, and continually ask and trust in emergence, what's called for in this moment. It requires incredible deep listening, sometimes a listening that means listening to the fleeting expressions on people's faces, mm -hmm. how they're carrying themselves in their chairs, not just who's making the most noise in the classroom or wants to talk the most or what they're mm -hmm. saying. It's really an art form. Right. It's very, very hard to turn into... Uh, a, an authentic professional training trajectory where then you get the certification at the end. I am now a certified mindfulness-based right. stress reduction teacher. I am not a certified mindfulness-based <laughs> stress reduction And I never would dream of either certifying myself <laughs> or having some higher authority or lower authority certify me for obvious reasons. Don't need it. Now, if it's skillful to be able to convince an insurance company that you're not some, you know, sort mm. of buddy just off the street who's making this stuff up and a complete charlatan, yeah, I understand that framework. But if that framework winds up coloring the ethic and the culture, then that's the kiss of death. Mm. So this is actually a, a big koan of its own, is how to transmit this through the generations going forward and I feel like that's where all of the traditions can collaborate and contribute. I mean, I have, you know, friends and colleagues around the world who are Buddhist monks living in monasteries teaching MBSR. Yeah. In the Zen tradition, and also, you know, especially in the Zen tradition, because they recognize something about it. That if form is really emptiness, then it doesn't matter if you call it MBSR, you call it Zen. It's like, what do people most need in this moment? And then how do you frame it in a way that it, there's no separation between the classical texts and the actual curriculum of MBSR? And they're doing that kind of work. I mean, they're younger, a lot younger than I am, and I don't know how it's all going to unfold. But I think it's kind of interesting that it's come to that, where it's not like, oh, we're just taking this stuff from Asia. But actually, Asia is very interested in adopting it both from the side of the classical Buddhist lineages and also in terms of like Chinese medicine, the mm -hmm. Chinese Academy of Sciences. I mean, they, they really care about this in a deep way. And they, there's, so, there's a lot of potential, I think, for a flowering, uh, a flourishing. I know that uh, Mind and Life loves the language of flourishing. Um, but I think this flourishing is a certain kind of flowering of what's deepest and best in us as human beings. You don't have to call it Buddha nature or true nature for that matter. But let's call it don't know. Let's call it not knowing mind. <laughs> uh, 
and an open-hearted spaciousness. So there's no separation between mindfulness and compassion. You know, it's, as they say, two wings, one bird. And I would say that this is either going to, hopefully does, lead to a certain kind of renaissance where we wake up as a species, which we have to. And actually, the name we gave ourselves as a species is all about wakefulness, yeah. you know. And meta-awareness, awareness of awareness, homo sapiens sapiens, mm. a double dose mm. of sapere, which means to taste or to know in that kind of way through direct experience. So I would say that, you know, now that it's not just MBSR for individual people falling through the cracks of the healthcare system, it's like the planet is falling through the cracks <laughs> of the human system. And we've, we've given it a fever. We are extracting resources both from the earth and from each other in ways that are um, incredibly violent, dominating, and uh, ultimately disease-causing, mm. dis-ease and disease-causing. COVID could have been 10 times worse, and it could easily, those molecules of RNA can rearrange themselves, and it could very well be 10 times worse the next time around. This is a kind of wake-up call for humanity. We are not kidding around. How about you stop kidding around and wake up? So that would be like a, a universal Dharma renaissance expressed through tech, through biotech, through everything, but with humanity at heart rather than capitalistic sequestering of unimaginable amounts of money while most people are like so poorly resourced, even as the pandemic showed, in terms of food, in terms of housing. And this is like the diagnosis of the patient is like, you know, if the heart and the liver went to war with each other, that would not be a good outcome for right. either the heart, the liver, or any other, you know, trillions of cells that make up the universe of you or me. So we know enough about medicine to actually apply medicine to the world now. Mm. And mindfulness and dharma, a universal dharma articulation, I would say, uh, if there were anything else on the horizon that might do a better job of it, I'd say go with that. But I haven't seen anything remotely possible yeah. uh, to, to move in that direction. And in its universal form, I don't think there's a person on the planet that wouldn't actually feel uh, healthier uh, and more at home and belonging and therefore less falling into fear and dualism about using and theming. Mm. Um, and then moving into greed, hatred, delusion, and violence. Uh, there's not a person on the planet that wouldn't not only benefit, but actually recognize that this was a whole new degree of freedom added to not just a person's individual life, but our life uh, as planetary citizens for the sake of all beings. Mm. And it is a distributive function. I guess that's the last thing that I would say about this is that it's a distributive function. It's like a, we need all hands on deck. It's not like one hero, one Dalai Lama, one great meditation teacher is going to come along and like illuminate it for us for all time. Each one of us is the cells of the one body of the planet, the body politic in a way. And if we take responsibility for own, our own little piece, well, because of uh, interconnectedness and quantum entanglement or whatever else you want to bring into the mix, you take care of yourself, you're also taking care of the world. 
And when it becomes we rather than me, I think that's a very healing direction to go in. to talk a little more about that. You've mentioned the self and kind of who are you really and who is there and and now talking about using and theming and this kind of division between self and other seems to be such a, I mean, it's, I'm sure it's been a prevalent problem throughout human history, but it seems very poignant and relevant right now in this moment. So I'm just wondering if you could say some more about the role of mindfulness as it relates to our concepts of self and other. I really appreciate you asking that. Um, and of course, I've talked an awful lot, so things can get lost. That's one thing that should not get lost. And, and of course, this lies at the heart of uh, Buddha Dharma and universal Dharma. And, and I will approach this playfully, so I'm not going to give you any kind of complete, definitive uh, answers or statements about like, this is the way it is, because, you know, I'm a big fan of don't know mind, as Sung San called it, and not knowing mind. So, so uh, that's, of course, a great koan is who am I? Or what am I? And that was Ramana Maharshi's when he was 16 years old, and he, he lay down in a, in a casket. And, uh, mm. and pretended to die to just investigate that looping back to my thesis defense and he who dies before he does. And he lost his, what you might call small self or any sense of like, you know, just being an ordinary 16 year old boy. And he just uh, moved into a whole domain of uh, boundless, open-hearted spaciousness. It's a classical example, but it's only one of an infinite number in the literature is very contemporary because he lived throughout the 20th century. So uh, the way I sometimes approach it practically is I'll say things like, you know, make a joke out of it and say, well, you know, I will ask like a room full of people, like a hundred people, a thousand people, how many of you are breathing? And, you know, a hundred or a thousand hands will go up. And I said, now let's be real about this, okay? Yeah, we say I'm breathing, but if whoever you are, if it was up to you to be breathing, you would have died a long time ago. You would have gotten distracted, got a text, whatever. <laughs> Oops, dead. So, and besides, we breathe through our sleep, right? So when we say I'm breathing, it's a certain kind of semantic convention, but we have no idea who that I is, who the personal pronoun is, what we're claiming. Because, you know, the way it's structured, the collaboration of the brainstem and the phrenic nerve and the diaphragm, yeah, you can hold your breath for a period of time, but you can't auto-suicide by holding your breath. You're not allowed anywhere near the real uh, regulatory, uh, you know, controls of breathing. Heart rate, heart contraction, even more so. 
So when we say I'm breathing, we don't know who that is. We say my breath, we don't know. When we say my body, who's, who, who's talking? Is it the body talking? Is it somebody other than the body that's claiming this is my body? So this is like elementary stuff. I mean, it's kindergarten, but it's like really important to begin to inquire and investigate these personal pronouns. Who do I think I am? And that's why I started out saying what I said when you asked me about my personal story, my story, <laughs> and, and how easily we can shape it in any number of different ways, including into utter depression, because, you know, depression is actually a disease of thinking. Uh, and mindfulness-based cognitive therapy and John Teasdale and Mark Williams and Zindel Siegel have shown this, like, dramatically that it's, it's a disease, it's a pathology of thought. And when you begin to regulate that thinking so that, you know, then you can ask who's, who's sad, who's depressed. And then all of a sudden you can ask yourself the question. It's like, here's the laboratory. You've got your own laboratory. Okay, let's investigate the thought, I'm depressed. And it comes with all sorts of feelings in the body. And then, okay, can you hold that in awareness? Now, can you investigate, like with a microscope or a telescope or whatever scope you want, is your awareness of your depression depressed? And let's call it your depression as opposed to just whatever it is. But is your awareness of your depression depressed? You immediately know that, no, it isn't. Is your awareness of your anxiety anxious? No. Is your awareness of how much pain you're in at the moment, either emotionally or physically, uh, in pain, suffering. No. I mean, so immediately you realize there's more to this whole story than we learned in kindergarten yeah. or in graduate school for that matter. And we can investigate it. We can exercise the same kind of scientific rigor that we would bring to the laboratory, to this laboratory. And then there's this whole poetic element of it where I like to use poems to actually evoke this in people because I'm not going to give big lectures on the philosophy or the nature of self, you know, <laughs> because it's boring for most people. And it's also then it would sound like I have some axe to grind and now I'm attached to no self, which would be just as <laughs> pathetic as being attached to the story of me. So the two poems that I like to use, almost like a, a hydrogen... Uh, molecule, you know, H2. So you've got these two protons and you've got this force field of electrons between them. Uh, and it's pretty powerful. And there's more hydrogen in the universe than any other element. The, these two atoms would be Emily Dickinson and uh, Derek Walcott. You probably know both these poems. But if you don't mind, I'll, I'll recite them. Yeah. So this is Emily Dickinson. And I usually preface it by saying, well, Emily Dickinson, like no one ever did poetry like she does poetry before or after her. Okay. And you have to listen very, very carefully. And it's hard for people who don't have English as their native language because they don't know that it's just as hard for people who do have English as their native language. So here goes. Me from myself to banish, had I art, impregnable my fortress unto all heart. But since myself assault me, how have I peace except by subjugating consciousness? And since we're mutual monarch, how this be except by 
abdication, me of me. Hmm. That bears repetition any number of times, but I won't do it. But, uh, you know, that me from myself to banish, who hasn't done that? Mm -hmm. Like, who is the true you? The real answer, I mean, to the koan, who am I, what am I, is don't know. The not knowing is the embrace. And the knowing of not knowing. I mean, this is so important for science, too, because anybody who gets caught in their own models of thinking uh, is caught and doesn't see the one thing lying outside the model that might open up the whole thing to a new insight that connects mm -hmm. all the dots. And you say, well, why didn't I see that? <laughs> well, because maybe you were too attached to the thought stream itself and you didn't see the spaces between the thoughts. The rest between the notes, as Rilke said, I won't get into Rilke today, but again, <laughs> there's so much in this. So then the other poem is, the other pole of the hydrogen molecule is um, Derek Walcott's Love After Love. So again, it's a dualism coming back to no dualism because we separate what was never really separate. So this is how he frames it. The time will come when with elation, you will greet yourself arriving at your own door in your own mirror and each will smile at the others, welcome, and say, sit here, eat. You will love again the stranger who was yourself. Give wine, give bread, give back your heart to yourself. To the stranger who has loved you all your life, who you have ignored for another, who knows you by heart. Take down the love letters from the bookshelf, the photographs, the desperate notes. Peel your own image from the mirror. Sit. Feast on your life. Mm. Beautiful. So very often if I'll use those two poems in my teaching in concert, either back to back or separated by a few weeks or whatever, they start to do something in concert with the meditation practice because you're going to ask, like, who's sitting? Who's breathing? Who, who's meditating? Who thinks they're getting somewhere? It's like a can opener. It just kind of takes the top off and it undoes the usual habit patterns that wind up creating the fabric of selfing the habit patterns of selfing where we generate stories that may be true to a degree, but they're never true enough and they're never, never big enough. And that's why silence and the poetic imagination are so intimately uh, uh, associated. Mm. That, you know, silence itself is in some sense the greatest poem, silent wakefulness. But in the Zen tradition, all of the great Zen masters were poets. And sometimes it was only one word or one line, but it was like left enormous space for the mind of another to resonate and be illuminated. And it's like 
this is true, I believe, although I'm not aware of old traditions, of all wisdom traditions, that there's a certain way in which it's just looking in the mirror, the mirror of our own mind when it's willing to be, as Sharon Salzberg said in one, you know, the title of one of her books, with, with your heart as wide as the world. And that would include you, not don't exclude yourself in this, which means even my totally unworthy, damaged, uh, whatever narrative you want to, you know, include, including traumatized self, when even that is not your true nature. You know, whether it's trauma, whether it's depression, whether it's, you know, chronic pain conditions or whatever, we have to begin to inquire what is holding the pain, what, what's holding the scars. And what's holding the scars is not the scars. So is there a way to actually hold the whole, W-H-O-L-E, in a way that, you know, just comes back to what I was talking about originally when I was defending my PhD thesis. And that's the love affair. And then life itself, as I said, is the curriculum. And every moment uh, is an, a profound uh, gift, opportunity. And everybody is the beneficiary of your not believing in your, what we might call small self or small self narrative. Because when you're really who you are, you are infinitely lovable. When you are contracted around your personal pronouns, you're a pain in the butt to most people, even people who love you the most. They, they know when you're contracted better than you do often. Uh, and so, so that's really an important element of all of this. Mm. Um, one of the things I just want to mention, I don't know if there's a question in it, but you started by talking about your parents and, you know, your mom as an artist and your dad as a scientist and they not necessarily having the full understanding of each other's modes of inquiry kind of into the world. And that, and that was a uh, full understanding. That was like, uh, <laughs> I already put it. It was like, I couldn't exaggerate it less. <laughs> <you know? laughs> gotcha. So maybe a disconnect. But I feel like so much of what you have developed and what you bring into the world is completely synthesizing those two perspectives, um, you know, bringing in poetry and art and this very different frame. Yeah, I'm aware of that, too, that uh, actually it's kind of a, I don't know how, what to call it, a, like an ar irony of emergence but it wasn't like, oh, let me do some science and let me do some art and see if I come to mindfulness. But it's just like spontaneous emergence out of inquiry. Yeah. I think it's beautiful. Yeah, it's, a, it's such a holistic inquiry, I guess, is what it feels bringing these different lenses. And that's such a part. I think that's a part of contemplative science, too, right, is bringing these different perspectives onto the mind. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's, it's everything. It would be music. It would be, you know, and again, um, I'm also very well aware that I'm, uh, at this particular time, I'm talking from a certain age, certain cultural arc, certain, uh, you know, sort of racial characteristics and so forth, using 
certain kind of language and that uh, what I'm trying to point to is something that's universal and that has uh, profound implications for people who, you know, from all over the world who don't look like me, who uh, don't think or talk like me, but have their own ways of thinking and talking and loving. And that I really do see this as as universal as as gravity, you know, <laughs> that wherever you go on the earth, the gravity is exerting itself. And, you know, and of course, mindfulness is as well in a certain way. And so we need to treat other expressions of mindfulness uh, with that kind of gravitas to play with the words mm. and, and then really recognize that this will not look one way, that if it looks one way, then it could be very easily seen as uh, sort of a uh, culturally reduced to particular groups of privileged people who do it this way, mm -hmm. whereas I see that it has mm -hmm. everything to do with the full dimensionality of our humanity and more like His Holiness, like mm -hmm. there's 7 billion people on the planet. He doesn't necessarily talk about different races and the Tibetans versus the, even the Chinese. I mean, that like he recognizes the mm -hmm. humanity underneath all of the animosity, the differences, the genocides, the, you know, the horrors, enslavement. Of, of people and historical generations of that, of uh, genocide uh, of the native peoples of this continent. You know, this, if we're not mindful of that, then we're turning away from something that's actually part of the landscape, just the way if we're not mindful of where the glaciers have gone, we're turning away from the actual part of the landscape. So the curriculum of mindfulness is boundless it's infinite and and the reason it's so important is because our default mode to a very large degree is blindness we default mm -hmm. to our own comfort zone in thought or in the language that we grew up with with the parents that we grew up with and the households that we grew up with and we don't realize there's insane beauty in all languages in all households in all cultures in all skin colors, in all traditions. So this is another part of the curriculum for this moment is that, you know, the chickens are coming home to roost on a lot of different levels, mm -hmm. not just global warming. And wealth inequality, racial injustice, uh, you know, social injustice. To go back to what I was saying earlier, the body politic cannot live just the way the body can't live if it's at war with itself or the heart insists on taking all of the blood and leaving the brain with nothing or the brain insists on taking all the blood and leaving the liver with nothing. It's like, wait a minute, this is not a zero-sum game. And when you can, people say that all the time, but when you wake up to it, that's what we really need is the waking up to it. So, you know, just to say, I mean, we published a paper on an inner city clinic that we ran for seven years in the inner city of Worcester that, you know, was free with free on-site mindful childcare and free door-to-door -door taxi transportation to demonstrate that this was really universal for, you know, people across a, a very broad range of different kinds of backgrounds, economic status, homelessness, everything. And, uh, you know, wasn't the greatest study in the world, but at least, you know, we were able to demonstrate that that was the case. We've also worked in the prisons for any number of years. And, you know, a lot of the people who are in prison shouldn't be in prison. And a lot of the people who are in positions of power, they should be in prison. <laughs> Seriously, if we're going to be imprisoning people with for crimes against humanity. Uh, 
But when I was teaching in the prison, it felt like giving food to starving people. Just to mm -hmm. be present and then have the curriculum not be art or science or learning to read or anything like that, but learning to read yourself. And mm -hmm. the narrative, so to speak, of how you wound up in prison and that story, well, that's part of a much larger story of who you weren't seen as, who you were not nurtured as, uh, and then you're stuck in this hell realm, only you're not. If you fall into wakefulness, then even in the hell realm, you're free. And so these are profound areas of certain kind of work that could be done, social activism and research that could be done as to the infinite ways in which the mindfulness or heartfulness can manifest to the benefit of the greater whole. At the risk of asking another personal question, uh -oh. <laughs> getting into your story. No, I'm just curious. Um, obviously, you've been practicing mindfulness for so much of your life, but can you um, articulate how it's changed you or maybe continues to change you? I don't think there's any question that uh, if I hadn't gotten into meditation when I did, I'd be dead, long dead. You know, and also it's a very wild, very self-destructive, very angry energies running through me in the uh, 60s. Uh, and, you know, a lot of people I know did wind up casualties of that time and never got to complete the arc of uh, the later decades of life, so to speak. More than that, I, I can't really say, you know, I mean... Uh, mm -hmm. I'll say this, you know, people often ask me, well, how many hours a day do you meditate? Or how long do you meditate? You know, I'm sure you get the same kind of question. People are naive to meditate. How long do you meditate? And I used to say, you know, for decades, I would say, well, I wake up very early in the morning and I spend about 45 minutes to an hour doing my yoga practice. And then I sit for another half hour, 45 minutes or whatever. And early enough so that then I can have breakfast and go to work and see my kids off to school or whatever. But I don't answer that way anymore. Because I can't really differentiate um, formal practice from life itself anymore. Yeah, I still do the formal practice. But I don't want to answer the question like how many hours I do formal practice or what other people would think of as formal practice. Because if I'm spending four hours with uh, my grandchildren, I feel like, you know, that's as much practice as anything else. Or taking a walk with, right. my, with my wife, or making dinner, or for that matter, doing my taxes. Or, you know, it's like that there's no moment of the waking day, at least, which um, isn't at least available for us to show up in. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the way I see it. But I also feel like at a certain point, the sort of paradox of self and other, that it's not clear whether you, whoever you are, is stretching the envelope 
or the world is stretching your envelope, but there's a lot of like fungibility and room for profound creativity, even in the face of what I called back in 1990, when my first book came out, the full catastrophe of the human condition. And, you know, I think if people didn't understand that title in 1990, after this year of pandemic, they have a little bit more of an inkling of uh, the full catastrophe of the human condition and how it's not a prescription for despair, but an invitation to meet it with the full repertoire of our, our human endowment uh, that has never, ever been fully defined or circumscribed. And I just love that because it's not circumscribable. And that brings us back to awareness. It's like no neuroscientist can really define awareness, right? And we have no idea how you get right. sentience out of three pounds of meat in the head, as people like Absolutely. to say. Uh, so out of 86 billion neurons and trillions of trillions of neuronal connections and so forth, uh, but all cells, you get experience. Experience. And this is where Francisco Varela's work and, you know, so much of the work of mind and life and neurophenomenology all comes together. But it's a profound mystery. And Chomsky would say it's kind of a mystery that, and Chomsky's, you know, fairly sophisticated in this domain. There are certain domains of human experience that are simply going to be mysteries. They'll never be illuminated by science. And that's okay, because we're biologically, in some sense, limited by having evolved this way rather than some other way. So it's conceivable that there could be other forms of cognition or sensation or whatever that we just, you know, until aliens come from, you know, some other planet, but it's true on this planet as well. So rather than put ourselves at the top of some evolutionary, you know, sort of narrative that we build for ourselves that we begin to really inquire about the opportunity that this level of consciousness has to keep the fun going on planet Earth while we have the chance. Yeah. It also strikes me in a different oh. note, but I, I wished I'd looped it in earlier, that talking about spin-offs, so from MBSR came Mindfulness-Based Cognitive Therapy, and John Teasdale is coming out with his own book soon about his understanding of mindfulness based on a very uh, interesting theory called Interacting Cognitive Subsystems. And it's really profound because his life is one of the greatest cognitive scientists on the planet. And meditation changed his life and his science in a way that's really profound. Mark Williams uh, is working on a book on the Vedanas, you know, I mean, after retiring from, after founding the F Center for Mindfulness at Oxford University. And Sintel Siegel, back in 2007 with uh, Norman Farr, wrote this remarkable, I think, remarkable paper about self-representations and how mindfulness, and particularly MBSR, influences self-representations and where it's pointing at is truly remarkable. Yeah. So there's all sorts of stuff going on on the scientific, in the scientific domain at the interface of Dharma that would have been completely unimaginable 40 years ago, and now it's come to pass, and even the NIH totally into 
research on mindfulness. Like, yeah. how did this come to be? And so I'd say the Renaissance isn't something that's coming in the future. It's here. It is already here. And we need to wake up more to that actuality. And maybe COVID and this kind of insidious pandemic of like uh, a little RNA and protein uh, actually being able to undo us and target receptors in the lungs that actually kill us to uh, find these positive memes like mindfulness and heartfulness, compassion, that also target not only receptors in the heart and in the lungs, but throughout, you know, our bodies in ways that um, really do catalyze learning, growing, healing, and transformation across the lifespan. Well, thank you so much, John. This has been amazing and absolutely enlightening conversation. I want to personally thank you very deeply. Your work and Full Catastrophe Living was one one of the first books I read that really? introduced me to these practices. Oh, yeah, that makes me feel wonderful. I'll tell you, Renzi. Oh my goodness, life changing. So, um, thank you really for spending this much time and sharing all these insights. Yeah, well, it was fun. And I think it really is beautiful that you've found this medium. And I just want to bow to you for what you're doing and, and also for how you know, generously you listen. There's an artistry to what you're doing and I, I can just feel it emanating out of you and, and, um, and it's, it's non-trivial. So I really bow to you for that. Oh, thank you so much. That means a lot. This episode was supported in part by Inspira Health. Show notes and resources for this and other episodes can be found at podcast.mindandlife.org. This episode was edited and produced by me and Phil Walker. Music on the show is from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and share it with a friend. If something in this conversation sparked insight for you, we'd love to know about it. You can send an email or voice memo to podcast at mindandlife.org. Mind and Life is a production of the Mind and Life Institute. Visit us at mindandlife.org, where you can learn more about how we bridge science and contemplative wisdom to foster insight and inspire action towards flourishing. There, you can also support our work, including this podcast. 